Welcome to the Agronomy and Farm Management Podcast. I'm Amanda. And I'm Elizabeth. Thanks for joining us today. Today we're excited to have Ben Brown back on with us from um, the Ag Econ Department. Ben is a favorite here to talk about many things mostly related to um, grain markets and policy. Welcome, Ben. Thanks. Really appreciate being on here. You know, this is one of my favorite things, so I'm excited to be back. (laughs) Yeah, we've got to keep up your appearances um, with Aaron Wilson's, right? That's right. We're having a little contest. I think Aaron's winning at the moment, but I plan on making a surge uh, this this winter. I hate to know what you have planned as far as the surge goes. I'm really hoping for a joke segment where all I do is tell farm jokes, but I'll leave that up to you all. As long as it's not more drama surrounding trade deals and things like that. No, I, I just, I, I like jokes. We'll see what we can do. Well, speaking of trade deals, um, one of the last times we had you on trying to iron things out with China was one of the biggest topics we focused on. So could you start off giving us an update on how things are going with China? Are they holding up their end of the deal here? That's a good question. Uh, We, you know, for the last, I guess, what it feels like, you know, five years at this point, but it's really just been two and a half. uh, We've been talking about China and China continues to be a big issue in our grain markets, mostly from the standpoint that we can tell when they're in and out of the market just based on price signals. Uh, When they're in the market, we see a nice rally. When they're out of the market, we continue to struggle. And and we've been facing this for you know several years now. Now we got some certainty at the beginning of this year, back in January. Uh, they inked a trade deal, as you just referenced, to basically make commitments, block commitments that importers within China were going to import U.S. commodities uh, to the tune of, of a value component. And I, I stress that from the standpoint that it takes both price and quantity to get to a value. But they, they made commitments on certain values uh, for ag and ag-related products. So we track those throughout the year. There is a little bit of a lag in terms of the value component. And when we look at the first half of the year, which again is through the 1st of July or the end of June, so that's the first half of the year, when we look at that from their commitment standpoint and then the seasonal pace needed to reach those targets, we're roughly about 40% below or behind where we need to be to reach those targets. Now, some of that can be related to the coronavirus that slowed down the implementation of these trade deals earlier this year, just with logistics. Um, certainly the hope is at least for farmers that produce soybeans is that we're gonna see continued large shipments of US soybeans entering into the Chinese market this fall. The other hope is, is that China starts buying ethanol and dried distillers grains. Those are two products that appear to be needs in China. They haven't bought really much uh, to date in terms of both of those products. And so we're kind of sitting here waiting a little bit, getting the signal that, you know, if they started buying those, then they, they would be serious about meeting their commitments. Now we've seen record shipments of pork uh, out of the United States and other countries around the globe into the Chinese market that you know, their country is still struggling, trying to recover from their African swine fever outbreak. We've seen some cases start to pop back up in China as of late, but we have seen these, these strong sales. Uh, it was earlier in the month of July, 
that we got a daily report. And, and I'll just remind folks that thanks to uh, the, the Russian and Ukrainian grain robbery uh, back in the 1970s, which we don't say that a lot. And, you know, we don't give thanks to that for, for many things. And most people can point to that and say that that was a challenging time in agriculture or a, or a very uncertain time. But one of the things that came out of that period back in the 70s was that if there was massive sales of products uh, in a certain day to a specific country, uh, that they would get reported by the USDA and made known publicly. And so we've had that system and it's been a wonderful system to kind of bring some transparency to the market. And so for the last uh, you know, couple of weeks, we've seen that daily export sales number um, pop up in our inboxes pretty much routinely. And we had, a, we had a period there in July of 10 straight days before we broke the cycle where U.S. was exporting. We were, we were seeing those daily shipments of circuit. That's, that's really strong for this period of year. Um, and to the tune that right now for our commitments for the next marketing year, we're, we're sitting just over 6 million metric tons of the Chinese market starting uh, with the marketing year that starts September 1st. In comparison, that's usually somewhere roughly around just under 3 million metric tons. So we've, we've doubled that value. Now we need to export shipments. Uh, we can't just have them stay as sales. We need to see those being turned into export shipments. But this is really part of the bigger picture within the Chinese system. They, they, they're buying based on need. They seem to have a need for, for pork and soybeans. We believe that it fits into their market for corn ethanol and sorghum and dried desserts grains. We just haven't seen them purchase that yet. So we'll have to keep watching a little bit and can keep tracking. But at this point, no, they're, they're still lagging what they need to reach those price targets. Uh, one of the things that I think is really interesting about the Chinese market at the moment, um, it's just one of the many things that kind of you sit there and you scratch your head just a little bit, but China believes that they handled the coronavirus better than anybody else in the world. Um, they truly believe that. They, they think that they did a, a really good job of containing the virus and that if the virus shut down their ports to where they were no longer able to import product into their country, matter of time before all the other ports around the globe have to shut down as well. And so they are stockpiling product at a faster rate than they can unload it off their ships at their ports. So they've got ships sitting in their ports waiting to be unloaded, but they just, there's so many of them, they can't get them all done. And we saw this first uh, with record shipments, April through really July um, from Brazil. Uh, and now we're seeing these strong daily shipments, as I mentioned, uh, from the United States really start to, to show up in the, in the buying pattern. So that's good news for soybeans. We've seen that really help support the soybeans in the face of what could be a large crop here domestically. And we're going to need those to continue. Uh, and I go back to the value comment where it's both price and quantity. Uh, you look at some of these, you know, these soybean export values that we're seeing and, and we're still lagging from where we normally were because we've come down in soybean price. Uh, back in 2017, when soybeans were above 10 bucks, it was a lot easier to get to those value commitments than today when we're sitting, you know, at nine bucks or a little below. So uh, both components, both quantity and price are going to be a fun of that value comment, but We've seen support to the U.S. soybean price as a result of these shipments, these daily announcements of sales uh, from the United States to China. And we'll need those to continue and actually be turned into exports uh, to continue to see progress in the soybean price. Right, thanks, Ben. You mentioned that Brazil was exporting to China. And is that really the China buying up from the U.S., Brazil? Is that really 
what drove Brazil to meet that export record? So for Brazil, the, the function is really, they had a large crop. They had a very strong crop this last year, both in terms of yield, and then they, they brought in more acreage, and we expect them to bring in more acreage again next year. Um, they're going to continue to be a major producer of, of global soybeans. And as a result, uh, you, China took advantage of that large production. We also had some interesting exchange rates that, that were really driving competitors or buyers to our competitors, especially Brazil. As the coronavirus worked its way um, into the United States, we saw our dollar strengthen considerably. Um, and when we see strength in the U.S. dollar, that, that makes our goods more expensive on the world market. And at the same time, the Brazilian real was falling. Um, so not only was our goods becoming more expensive to the Chinese, but Brazilian products were becoming cheaper. And so we uh, not only did Brazil have soybeans to send, but in a lot of cases, you know, they, they, were, they had the cheaper soybean uh, and Chinese buyers took advantage of that. We're gonna continue to see Brazil continue to expand soybeans. Um, their infrastructure is getting better. They're cutting down on their cost of production based on yield productivity gains. Um, it is interesting, Brazilian producers for years have been advocating for a highway, a paved highway that takes soybeans from their major growing region to their port in northern Brazil. Uh, that, that road is, is, is nearly finished and it's going to cut the transportation cost by about 30%. But uh, there's always that saying, be careful what you wish for. Uh, Brazilian producers got their paved highway that they wanted, but we got notice this last week that the Brazilian government's going to make that into a toll road. Um, and so that's going to cut into a little bit of those cost savings um, from a transportation standpoint. But nonetheless, I think we should be concerned that Brazil's productivity gains, both in terms of yield, their infrastructure is getting better, and their exchange rate continues to give their farmers an incentive and the signal to continue to increase production. Well, Ben, the other big part of the equation that's really taken a toll on our demand this spring and summer has been the decrease in the demand for ethanol with coronavirus and the decrease in travel. Um, where do you see that heading here over the next few months? Yeah, so this was this was a big thing back in April um, and May when we had a bunch of stay-at-home orders go into place across the country. People were working from home. We were not driving very much. And ethanol production as a result fell about 50%, just over 50% at its peak from where we normally would be during April and May. That was a shocking feat um, given that, you know, ethanol is a major driver. It's the second largest user use of corn in the United States. And as a result, uh, we saw corn basis bids all across the country fall at these ethanol plants and producers were uh, in some cases even having trouble finding ethanol plants that were giving bids for, for this fall. Now I'm thankful that our ethanol seems to be recovering um, and those ethanol plants are offering fall basis bids for delivery, which is, which is very good. But we've, we've only recovered about 90, or excuse me, we've only recovered about 91% of where we would normally be this time of the year. Now, ever since that, that bottom there at the end of April, where we fell to about half of our normal production, we had 12 consecutive weeks of increased ethanol production week over week. And then so week ending July 25th, we, we had a week where we finally ended that streak of 12 consecutive weeks of growth and we, we retracted just a little bit. 
uh, following that up, the week that ends July 31st, we saw an increase um, again. So we're back in the right direction. We're heading the right direction, but it's going to be hard to make up that remaining 10% um, or 8 to 10% of ethanol consumption here in the United States. And primarily the reason for that uh, is related to motor fuel consu consumption. We've had about an 11% decline in annual fuel demand, um, but that also assumes that we don't have major flare-ups later this year. But one of the big concerns I have uh, is, you know, it's going to be difficult uh, to, to see increased motor fuel use when we get into the fall, especially if people continue to be working from home. Uh, it's not a prime travel season for a lot of folks. And so I think right now what's helping us out a little bit is we're reduced airline miles. We're not flying as much and we're overcompensate or we're, we're compensating with that with driving more places. I'm from Missouri. Um, I didn't fly to go home this summer. Instead, I drove home. Um, we use more ethanol in our motor fuel for cars and vehicles than we do airplanes. And so that's helping us out a little bit when we get later in the year and we're just not driving as much or, you know, students don't return back to school and primary caregivers are staying home as well. I think it's going to be very hard to get that 10%. So as a result, uh, USDA has whacked our corn used for ethanol by about 575 million bushels um, since the start of the year. That's a huge number. Uh, it's over 10% of our corn used for, for ethanol, but I still think we could see another revision down in August uh, when, the, when the USDA puts out their final WASDE report for this marketing year. The interesting thing I think when I look at USDA's estimates for next year, is they're expecting ethanol consumption at five, or excuse me, corn used for ethanol um, to be about 5.2 billion bushels. Um, that's a pretty optimistic number given what we've seen with ethanol consumption now, motor fuel consumption, and, and the possibilities through the rest of the year. So I think it's going to be really hard uh, to get back to normal with ethanol consumption. Uh, but I think it's going to be even harder uh, to maintain that 5.2 million billion bushels of corn used next year um, crushed into ethanol. Okay, so let's switch gears here a little bit and talk about some marketing strategies for going into fall and winter. Right now, we're not seeing any carry in the market in soybeans, correct? So what does that mean for strategies that farmers might be thinking about using? Absolutely. And, and market carry is one of our signals to determine to store the grain or not to store is what I like to say. It's our signal of um, what to do with the grain at harvest. And, you know, we've, we've made a, a strong about face in our soybean picture. Uh, it wasn't that long ago that we were talking about growing U.S. soybean stocks and, you know, just more soybeans that we could handle, um, both locally at our local elevators and then just nationwide. I mean, we just had a lot of soybeans on hand. Uh, we still got a lot of soybeans, so I don't want to paint an overly bullish or, you know, don't get ideas about $11 soybean prices. But, uh, you know, the, the market gives us signals in terms of when they need the grain. And so when we see our nearby futures contracts, which right now we're operating off the September futures contract, and it, you know, and it's been hovering just below nine bucks um, here as of late or the last couple of weeks. And 
when we look out forward into the future months or to the deferred market contracts, we see them just at or right below uh, where we're at for the September futures month. That signals to us that the market needs soybeans now, that they are saying we need, we want to bring those soybeans into the market now. We don't want the farmer to, to store his beans. We're not going to give him or her a Oper, you know, I, we're not going to give them the incentive to, to wait. Uh, we want the beans now. So when I first came to Ohio uh, back in 2017, one of the things that I would ask people is about their marketing strategy. And several people told me that they liked to use the strategy of selling their product at harvest because they either didn't have storage or they didn't want to worry about quality. They would sell their product at harvest and then they would buy back futures contracts like a March futures contract or a, you know, a June or futures contract as well. And they would buy a call to, you know, if the market rallied, that protected them and gave them the opportunity to participate in the market if the market went up. I kind of sat there and scratched my head at the time um, from the standpoint that at the end of 2018, uh, we had large soybean stocks and there was big carry in the soybean market. We were looking at at you know 60% full carry uh, compared to storage cost in, in the market in, in 18 and then the beginning of 19. And I, I heard this, that people were doing that. And then th last year, so the end of 2019 heading into 2020, we didn't have as many soybeans. We turned a lot of soybean acres into corn prevent plant last year. The market was, was very narrow to, to inverted, much like what we are right now, to where the market was saying, hey, bring those soybeans in at harvest. We don't want you to store them. And I would ask those same people their strategy. And they said, oh, we're sticking them in the bin and we're going to wait. And I kind of, I was, I was kind of a little bit, you know, confused from the standpoint that if the market is giving you an incentive to store, that's when you should be storing your soybeans because you're taking account for basis uh, appreciation. We assume that the basis is weak at harvest when we've got large carry because we've got lots of beans. So the elevator doesn't need soybeans. So uh, hopefully we see some strength in basis uh, throughout the year, but we're able to take care, we're able to take advantage of that market carry. When we sell um, in years where the market carries large, like two years ago, and then buy a call in the future, usually those are very high priced calls and we're paying the storage costs there and not being able to take advantage of the basis appreciation. So when I look at the soybean market today, uh, and again, we're in September uh, and the market is flat to inverted, this would be a prime opportunity to sell at harvest and then Given that we're tight, you know, there's a good chance that the market might rally. And if you buy a call, you're able to participate in that market rally. Um, now, when the November contract comes around, uh, I, you know, I'm looking at the November contract right now, and there is just a little bit of carry um, in the deferred months, but it's, it's very slim. I mean, we see a very narrow carry for, for those deferred months. And so, you know, it is possible that we get to harvest and this would be an opportunity to sell soybeans at harvest uh, and, and buy a call to participate in the market if it goes up or if we start seeing big demand from China um, in December and January. That would be opportunities where I think we can participate in the market but take care of some of our risk now. So just something to keep in mind, especially in the soybean markets uh, where, you know, it doesn't look like we're going to... Um, you know, there's still the possibility that this crop could could be a little smaller than what we think it is. Uh, certainly, it's not as big as what we've seen in the last couple of years. Thanks, Ben.
So really quickly, let's touch on the yield expectations that we're seeing to wrap up this year. And then also, you know, the flooding in China and how you see that impacting things. Absolutely. Yes. Um, so I know it's hard to believe, uh, you know, here in Ohio, we, we haven't been as fortunate as some of the other places around the country to where it got dry for a lengthy period of time here, uh, especially in parts of Ohio. Now there's, there's parts of Ohio where the crops look, look good. Um, it's basically the haves and the have nots in Ohio. When you get out of Ohio and even out of Western Iowa, Western and Central Iowa, the crop looks pretty good um, across the country. We've seen both soybean and corn ratings continue to hold um, for those good to excellent corn ratings that USDA puts out. And as a result, um, that has continued to put downward pressure on both our corn and soybean markets. And so we're at the point where we're kind of moving out of a weather market in corn. Uh, we've we've pretty much erased all of the all of the gains that we got when the acreage report came in a lot smaller than what we anticipated about two million acres fewer than what anybody really expected. We've pretty much erased all of that with the the expectations that we're going to have a, a strong crop. And if you go state by state and plug in a yield estimate for each state by state, you know Wisconsin's looking at a record crop, Minnesota's looking at a really strong crop. Um, parts of Kansas and, and Missouri, uh, very strong crops as well, and Indiana uh, as well, and Illinois. I mean, it's just you go across the, the board, and, and there's, there's really some opportunities that we could end up with a national yield above 180, which I know is hard to believe given um, you know, some of the challenges we've had here in the eastern Corn Belt this year. But you know, we're really looking at a strong yield. Now on soybeans, we've got a little bit more to go. Um, the weather outlooks, at least right now for August, look favorable for soybean pod development. Uh, we'll have to continue to watch those and monitor those as we head through. So there's a little bit more wiggle room on soybeans that we could have a smaller crop. But the corn picture is starting to look like we're going to have a really strong national yield. Um, but there's going to be places across the country, Ohio being one of those, um, Iowa, Western Iowa being another one, where there's maybe not as much corn. We're going to see a basis opportunities start to show up uh, to where, you know, places that need corn to feed animals, for instance, like let's say there's an elevator that grinds a lot of feed for, for livestock operations, you know, they're going to need corn. Um, and as a result, we're going to see basis really start to pick up in those areas as well. So just keep an eye out for that as we look at that. But nationwide, I think we're looking at a pretty solid crop. We've got a lot of corn. There's no reason to start rationing demand is kind of my my thinking there. As far as Chinese flooding, uh, we talked a little bit about China earlier and their commitments and, and what they've purchased from us so far and, and the large purchases that we've seen. You know, when I look at the flooding that we're seeing in China, it's certainly making a lot of headways. It's not really their corn and soybean regions that are seeing this massive flooding. It's more of the rice and wheat areas. So certainly that's supportive of our wheat picture um, here in the United States uh, for, for soft red winter wheat that we grow here in Ohio. I think there's opportunities for that. But my my big concern really with corn and soybeans going into China is logistical related. Uh, China uses their river system to get product from the ports that they're importing from the United States, for instance, um, into mainland China. And when we see these rivers elevated or heaven forbid, the Three Gorges Dam bursts um, in, China, in central China, you know, we're going to have some lasting effects of, of being able to transport product within within the country. And I think that's really, you know, if that would happen, uh, you know, I think instantly, you know, people are, you know, expecting them to increase imports because their product would be threatened. 
but the reality is, is I think it's going to really impact their transportation ability, and, and thus we could see some, some significant downturn um, in their ability to import ag products because they just have no way of getting it from the ports into their inland countries at a profitable rate. Well, Ben, um, thank you so much for your time. There's been a lot going on and um, hard to get it all into 20 minutes, but I think you did a great job of hitting the high points. If people want to look into this a little bit more, where do you suggest they go? Yeah, so we, as part of the farm office team at Ohio State University, we we ran a, a website called farmoffice at osu.edu. Uh, we try our best to put all farm management and really ag econ material there. Uh, and it's a really strong team effort that I'm excited to be a part of. And we try to keep and maintain grain marketing pages as available for folks to, to uh, access. We're continually updating those, making those more accessible and uh, with more material. Um, it's kind of right now we're in the process of merging websites. Um, but certainly if anybody has any questions, you're welcome to reach out to me at brown.688 at osu.edu. Again, that's brown.6888 at osu.edu. Um, we're, we're more than welcome to, or willing to uh, answer questions and provide more details. Thanks, Ben. It's always a pleasure to have you on. Uh, it is. It's always great to be with you guys. And I wish we could be in person and I wish we could uh, get out and see folks around the state. But uh, that's, that time will soon return to us, I hope. Thanks for listening to the Agronomy and Farm Management Podcast. Join us again in two weeks for our next episode.